0: Uh, a bunch of headlines today. We had the head of the World Health Organization, uh, Tim, coming out warning about the global global. COVID infection rate approaching its highest level ever. We talked about more than 200 million vaccines, though, administered here in the U.S. Um, There's a lot going on.
1: Yeah, let's just give a wrap of cases. COVID uh, cases passing 139.3 million deaths approaching uh, 3 million, more than 848 million shots given worldwide. And here in the U.S., 3 million a day uh, regularly being given.
0: And let's just mention, too, that the European Union most probably will not renew contracts for COVID-19 vaccines with AstraZeneca and J&J, as it really is prior prioritizing right. other types of shots that's according to a french government uh, minister let's bring in dr ian lesbader one of our favorite voices to check in with on the virus and that vaccine rollout he is clinical professor of medicine at nyu langone with us once again on the phone in new york city how are you
2: good carol and tim happy friday hope all's roll well with you folks
0: yeah just a little tired it was a, that kind of a week um Let's talk about some of the headlines that are out there. J&J, first of all, the delay, the pause. They did a review, then they came out and still said we need some more time to look into um, the unusual blood clotting. What do you make of that?
2: So uh the disease or the, the, the syndrome that is being talked about is something called CVST or Cerebral Venous Sinus Thrombosis. These are basically veins that collect blood from the brain and drain it out. And we do see clotting that happens in about three out of a million people uh, normally. They can occur in patients who have platelet abnormalities or prone to clotting. Uh, Sometimes we see it in patients on birth control, which we know increases clotting, pregnancy, uh, hormonal changes, dehydration. So this uh, uh, clotting disorder is something that we see normally. I think it's going to be very hard to directly Mm -hmm. attribute it to uh, the J&J vaccine. My understanding is these are six women. I don't know more details. Mm -hmm. And the the clotting appears to have occurred, and it presents with headache and maybe some visual changes, um, approximately six to 13 days after the vaccine. So. I think it is going to be very difficult when you have six cases out of about six million shots uh, in the U.S. to really say the vaccine is responsible. I'm not sure that it is, and it is really not that much higher, if at all, than we would normally see in the population. So it is possible maybe people got dehydrated, maybe uh, these women were on birth control or pregnant or had some other condition that predisposed them. I'm not sure, at least based on this data that it really has anything to do with the vaccine at this point. I'm
1: wondering, though, if the damage has been done. And I'm talking damage to Johnson & Johnson. I'm talking damage to the way that Americans and people around the world feel about the safety of a vaccine that until last week we all thought was a very good solution to uh, getting us out of this pandemic, a a, a one and done shot. Has the damage been done, Dr. Lesbader?
2: You know, I think it is a good solution, and I think whenever you're vaccinating, millions of people or doing anything to millions of people. There will be rare cases of of almost anything, and I think one has to be very careful. But I agree with you. I think the people who have vaccine hesitancy, it did not help at all. And I think we even see it here at the Javits Center and elsewhere where the number of people coming in for vaccines is down Mm-hmm. And it really would be a shame uh, to kind of magnify something that really may not be related at all. And I think it has done some damage. Certainly, probably, you know, to their, the vaccine arm of J and J. And I think we're jumping to conclusions. I think we do. It's reasonable to take a pause, look into it. But based on the data that I am seeing. I am not so sure it's at all related to the vaccine. And it would be a shame to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak.
0: Hey, Dr. losbeter is there a good chance, though, that we don't get enough vaccines uh, to, into the arms of people across the United States, get their double shot, so that we can get ahead of uh, any of the concerns and stresses that might be caused by some of the variants? And essentially, can we get to herd immunity fast enough so that we'll be in good shape?
2: Well, that is exactly the question. And that, I think, is what Jim Jordan was getting at when he was uh, talking uh, or speaking with Dr. Fauci, which is, you know, when is the all-clear signal? And really, the right question should be, when do you think we'll reach herd immunity? And we think that number is somewhere, you know, around 70 percent. We're up to about 40 percent in New York of people who are vaccinated. The number of cases in the tri-state area is dropping a bit. There are other areas around the world and around the country where it's increasing. So I think we do have have to push the vaccinations. Um, there probably are some risks and there are some adverse effects. It's not 100% effective. There are a few patients who do get COVID after getting the vaccines. But overall, these are highly effective, highly safe vaccines. And I think the sooner we get to herd immunity uh, as a community effort, as a national effort, uh, the the less chance we will be to be susceptible to these variants that are popping up and are coming in from other countries.
0: If you had a place a bet, red or black? Saying that we do get to herd immunity uh, before we have maybe another wave because of the variants, or that we won't get to herd immunity in time—just got about thirty seconds here. What do you think?
2: I think we will reach herd immunity towards the end of the summer, and I hope that avoids uh, a bad variant. I hope.
1: Okay,
0: fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> we do too.
1: And, and look, I think part of the way to herd immunity is, of course, people being infected by this, and and that's, that's exactly. what we saw. So. If the people who don't get vaccinated are infected and and recover, then they have the antibodies that, uh, from what we know, is is similar to being vaccinated, right, Dr. Lesbader? Only have 15 seconds.
2: One way or another we are going to get there. We could do it the hard way or the easy way. Yeah. The hard way is getting sick. The easy way is the vaccine. People <laughs> have to choose. Hopefully they choose the easier way. No, I like
1: that a, way that characterization. It's, a it's a great easy way to, to understand.
0: It's a great way to explain it.
1: Let's get right back to Dr. Ian Lustbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on most Fridays. Dr. Lustbader, I want to talk about what is happening outside of the United States, what's happening outside of Israel, and what's happening outside of the UK because those are really the countries in the world that are far ahead of everyone else when it comes to vaccines, what happens if we get to a point where those countries reach herd immunity, but other countries don't?
2: That, that I think is exactly a, a, a critical point. In order for us to reduce um, global variants, we need to reduce the pool of unvaccinated and people who are getting the infection. So the sooner we all reach herd immunity, uh, as individual countries and as a planet, uh, the more likely it will be to uh, prevent any of these variants. The problem of course is, as we begin to approach herd immunity, and certainly Israel and and the UK are doing very well with that, that will give us a protection for a while. But once you open up your countries and once other people come in, and we know Brazil, South America, um, India with this double mutant variant, unless they have vaccine provided to them or purchase vaccine, or we give them vaccine, unless we're getting a global response, we cannot really eliminate the possibility of of resistant variants occurring. And if that happens, then we will all need boosters that are tuned to those variants. It just makes it a longer process, a harder process, and more lives will be lost.
0: So when you hear a headline like we got today about Moderna saying it's going to deliver less COVID-19 vaccines and planned to the UK, Canada, and other countries this quarter because of a shortfall in doses in its European supply chain, we go back to those supply chain problems, that's not a good thing. That's troubling.
2: It is troubling. I think that's why we should not uh, jump to conclusions about J&J uh, or AstraZeneca. I think we need to do due diligence. But those are are certainly um, helpful in the armamentarium. I think the more vaccines and the different vaccines available, the better. Uh, they don't need to be kept quite as refrigerated. So I think we need to be very cautious about Um, Throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think J&J probably will, I think, will show it to be that it's effective and not really related to this clotting disorder. Or there may be some patients who are not appropriate. If you've got platelet issues, if you've got clotting issues, speak to your doctor if you're pregnant. Uh, if you're on birth control, you may not be an ideal candidate for that particular vaccine, but it may be perfectly fine for millions of other people. So I think we need a global effort in order, like smallpox, in order to really um, eradicate it. If not, we're going to need boosters probably every year, like influenza.
1: So, do you think it was a mistake for the U.S. government and the agencies associated with the vaccination campaign to come out and put a pause on J and J, or suggest no, to put I a think- pause?
2: I think public perception is key and I think the public uh, already there's some vaccine hesitancy and so I think due diligence needs to be done to reassure people. I think you basically had to put a pause We'll have to see. There, there mm. could be a subset of patients. that's small. We're talking a handful of, of people who had this problem. And, and as I say, maybe we need to identify which people may not be appropriate. But I think the vast majority of people will be appropriate, you know, and should get it. And that's really the only way we're going to prevent this pool of young people. We're seeing more young people coming down with COVID. We really need to vaccinate a lot more people. and We need to reassure people that it's safe if we don't want to prolong the agony. Uh, that's really the only option.
0: Just got about a minute left. I want to go back to a conversation that we've had with you maybe months ago and throughout the pandemic. The pandemic revealed to us that healthier individuals wasn't always a guarantee, but typically it seemed like had a better chance of fighting COVID-19. Will we continue to look at ways to kind of improve the health of all Americans going forward? Do you feel like that was on our radar and will stay on our radar? Or do you think it goes away and just got about 45 seconds?
2: I think it should be on our radar. We're going to continue to talk about it after COVID on Bloomberg. But This, I think, was a wake-up call for obesity, exercise, um, lung disease. There are many modifiable risk factors that we should address aggressively. We have to change that COVID hunks, chunks, and drunks. We need to get out and exercise, (laughs) lose weight, and I think we will uh, improve our safety, not only from COVID, but from other diseases.
1: Right. Hungs, Chunks, and Drunks. My dad texted me, Dr. Lesbader, after last time you were on, and he said that, and he thought it was pretty good. He it's hadn't brilliant. heard that yet. It's a good one. I hadn't heard it yet
0: either. I think we need t shirts, mugs. I'm just going to put it out there, Ian. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Story of the magazine this week. It's also among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal on this Friday. We're going to take you to the laid-back regulatory town that welcomed Elon Musk's boring company with open arms and offered up, Tim, plenty of dirt.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's called Adelanto, California. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Sarah McBride is the one who wrote the story. She's a venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News. Joel Weber... um, I am from California. I have never heard of Adelanto, California, before this story, <laughs> and I got to tell you, I am so surprised uh, to find that a city with so few residents has had so much drama.
3: It's uh, kind of an incredible story, and um, props to Sarah for for finding it and bringing it to us and just writing a great yarn. Um, Adelanto is uh, sort of the middle of nowhere. And the city has pretty lax rules, and uh, when they found out that Boring Company, which is Elon Musk's uh, tun- tunneling venture, you know, in addition to you know dabbling with electric cars and space stuff, he also goes underground. Um, they kind of realized that they needed something of a test site. Um, so, Sarah, I'll take it. Why don't you take it from there? What did uh, what was the pitch uh, to Boring Company like?
4: Sure. So um, it was just an incredible story. This little town really has no business other than jails to speak of, and they needed um, new revenues, something to kind of uh, bring more business to town. They heard that Elon Musk had been running into problems with his boring company in Hawthorne, California. They kept needing to get permits to dig under roads there, and they were sort of stirring up a lot of dust, and they were just running into problems getting all the permits that they needed, and they needed a town that would just be a lot more flexible. But in California, there are strict environmental rules, and that can be hard to find. So um, they were kind of on the lookout, talking to this county supervisor in San Bernardino County, California, who wanted the business in his county and said, I think I can recommend some towns. So he actually did throw out a few names of cities in the high desert. And Adelanto, California was one of them. And as one person I spoke to for this story put it, if there's a gray area in environmental regulation, the city will always kind of come down on the business friendly side. And they just did that to a large degree here, um, including j- telling the boring company they didn't need an environmental review, which is a months-long, sometimes years-long process that can hold up a lot of projects. And um, the mayor even told the boring company, hey, I hear that um, Hawthorne is worried about your stirring up dirt. Well, we have a lot of dirt here. We have no <laughs> way of telling if it's your dirt or our dirt.
5: <laughs>
0: well, it was great. Sarah, it's like... A couple of stories here and that, first of all, it, I feel like the world is courting Elon Musk right now. But, mm-hmm. you know, Elon Musk at the same time is looking for venues and places where he can kind of do his thing, you know, right. unrestricted. Right. I mean,
4: in some ways, a, a lot of um, businesses and um, Elon Musk's businesses have done this as well, have looked for tax breaks. But this town was totally broke. They can't really offer any tax breaks, but they could offer something that is just as important uh, in some ways, which is, okay, if you want to do something or dig something or whatever it is, we'll find a way to help you do it. So um, at the same time that Boring Company came to Adelanto. they were running into all kinds of problems with officials in Northern California over, uh, in, in that case, COVID regulations. But this is a town that is sort of a live and let live town, and um, they just told Boring Company, "Come here, we'll make things easy for you." And that was worth the absence of any tax break.
1: Well, Sarah, you got to visit Adelanto, California, this past yes, January. Did. <laughs> yeah, well, what? Well, what, what was kind it? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, you, you got to go to the town, but you didn't necessarily no, did. get to see the boring the boring project up close like you thought you would.
4: Right. Right. So before, I mean, the city manager kind of talked big, and I don't think he realized how unfriendly to the press um, Elon Musk's companies are. So he said, don't worry, I can go in there anytime. And there is a California law that a city official can um, inspect businesses. He said, I can go whenever, and I'll just bring you along. When I got there, I think he realized how much pushback there was from the boring company. He didn't really expect... Explain it in a satisfactory way. He just said that the boring company couldn't have visitors that week. And I was like, what do you mean? I thought he said you could visit anytime. And he just kind of never really gave me the straight story. But bottom line, I believe was that the boring company had told him no reporter visits. So I went and I looked from the outside. I talked to a foreman. I was there when the gates were open. So I kind of got a look in past the gates. But you can actually get a pretty good idea of what they're doing from outside. You can see all the cranes and the tunnel boring equipment. They have all these cement liners piled up outside. And I'd spoken to enough people that I kind of knew some of the things that they wanted to test. And that's what so, they're testing for, yeah. for example, so, so way to dig.
3: Yeah, so let's just talk about that a little bit more, Sarah. Like, what, what, do, we, what do we know boring companies capable of, and what do we think they might be working on there?
4: Well, um, they're trying to really speed up tunneling and get it done a lot faster and cheaper than traditional tunneling companies. So they've been working on all these advances to a, uh, the front piece of the tunnel boring machine, which is what actually digs through the rock or the soil or whatever the condition is. One thing that slows down tunneling is you have to dig a big vertical hole and drop a tunnel boring machine down into it. They're figuring out a way to have the tunnel boring machine go down at an angle and start um, boring through the soil right away, which is speeding up the process right there. And then, you know, there are other things that they'd have to work on too, such as, you know, if they are digging in an area with water, how to pump out water and stuff like that. Um, So, uh I, I spoke to an official yesterday who thinks that their biggest advance could be in the actual tunnel boring equipment rather than the high-speed hyperloop idea that they had at first.
0: Just going to say that you got to love a story that, first of all, has Elon Musk in it, a little unknown town in California. It also has a, an animal control supervisor that you're going to want to know, unfortunately, uh, what he got in trouble for. And then you have those felon, felon moms.
1: Yeah, they were not happy with the charter school. No. Uh, yeah, so lots of drama. <laughs> and Joshua Trees. Town.
0: Joshua Trees are involved, yeah. too. There's, this story <laughs> has everything. <laughs> it's such a great read and visual. Thank it's you. just incredible. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah McBride, it's among our most read. It's in the magazine this week. She's venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. Find the magazine at newsstands online on the Bloomberg. Jill Weber, of course, our thanks to you, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stinovic on Bloomberg Radio. Watch out Wayfair, there's a new read Old Player in Town coming for you. This is a Bloomberg exclusive, Tim. It til- deals with how Amazon is really planning a, fur- a furniture assembly service. They're looking to go after Wayfair.
1: Yeah, they are. Spencer Soper has the scoop, technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News. Joining us on the phone from Seattle, Spencer, congratulations on this scoop. Uh, this is like an Amazon, empl- no, I don't want to say Amazon employee. I got to be very careful there. This is a, a, a delivery person uh, coming into your home and setting up that thing that you ordered online. If it's a treadmill or a bunk bed, right?
6: Yeah, it, it, that's precisely what it is. And it's it's trying to combine those two things. So um, some places, including Wayfair and even Amazon has tried in the past where, you know, one person will deliver it. Maybe the boxes sit around uh, and then someone else comes to put it together if you if you opt for that service. Amazon's looking to combine those things to have like a better a better customer uh, experience.
0: So what's the the bigger strategy here, Spencer, for Amazon? Because I really do feel like they have so much data coming into their site that they get to see where the growth areas you know are. And the home was a big one during the pandemic, and I feel like this is just them saying, we got to be in it more aggressively.
6: Yeah, exactly. They want to differentiate. So uh, people, you know, the, the pandemic pushed a lot of shoppers online. It also got a lot of shoppers over humps that they previously had. Like maybe they previously didn't want to buy groceries online. Suddenly they're buying groceries online. Same thing with furniture. It's like we need a desk, we need a table, we need a bed. We'll buy it online because the stores are closed or we're afraid to go to the store. So suddenly a lot of these markets that were difficult to penetrate are, are easily accessible. And then that's created delivery log jams. So Amazon always you know can see an opportunity that all right, if other companies are having trouble getting people to stuff quickly, let's let's use our reputation for quick delivery and then add quick assembly service on top of that.
0: I'm thinking too, Spencer, this could be a pretty decent margin business too, assembly.
6: Well, it's a bigger it's a bigger ticket item on the purchase, right? Yeah. So it's like it's expensive to amazon for Amazon to deliver you, to deliver a roll of paper towels. you know, but if they're if they're bringing you a, a seven eight hundred dollars sofa, there's a little more margin to play with, and they can you know, pay somebody a few bucks to, to, you know, to set mm-hmm. the thing up for you, to put some legs on a table or assemble a chair, that sort of thing.
1: Hey Spencer, how do the uh, drivers feel about this?
6: <laughs> so drivers are worried and apprehensive. Um, there's still con- lingering concerns about COVID because people will tend to hover over you while you're in their home, um, but that's fading as, as more and more people are vaccinated. But they're also just worried about exactly how it's gonna work. They've been given very scant details on how they're gonna be uh, trained, you know, what the performance metrics are going to be like, uh, because Amazon is always rating people on how quickly they do things. And you just introduce a lot of variables when you go into someone's home. You know, is this gonna be a quick uh, move of a mattress down a hallway into a bedroom? Or are you gonna be like climbing over piles of stuff in some hoarder house, you know, and it's and it's a half day endeavor. So that that those are the questions that they have.
0: You just created this image for me. (laughs) It's like, you know, I could just see a delivery person's nightmare. Um, I feel like this is such (laughs) a bigger story, though, constantly of Amazon, and Spencer, you know this better than all of us, just kind of increasingly being a part of all of our lives on so many different levels.
6: Yeah, and they just want to get deeper into the house and deeper into the home and and eliminate these pain points. And then it's going to start initially with furniture, but it could, uh, you know, it could expand to appliances, things like washing machines, dishwashers, and things that would require more driver training. But if Amazon sees that there's appetite for it, they'd certainly put that money in it and and, and that training into it. And then that means trouble for other people who do that now, like Home Depot and Lowe's and that sort of thing.
1: So Amazon still already has this kind of Amazon Home Services, right? Where like if I order a big screen TV... I don't know, a flat screen TV like as if they make other TVs these days, right? <laughs> I'm really dating myself here. If I order a TV on on Amazon, I can I can buy a bracket and also like add on the idea that somebody comes to my home and does this. Does this build on that?
6: Yeah, this builds on that and it simplifies it. So one, Amazon Home Services is available in select markets now, right? It's not universal. We don't we don't have it where I live a little bit south of Seattle. Um, so then the, but the complication there is one person's delivering the TV then you got it sitting in a box and right. you're waiting for some other contractor to show up and so just think about you just ordered a new bunk bed you know and 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 your kids are excited to try it out but it's going to be sitting in the box while you wait for some other delivery guy to come and that also just adds expense so this yeah. is just simplified look we're already sending the delivery people bring it in set it up for them put you know pick up all the all the cardboard and packaging get it out of there and if they don't like it take it back immediately. Don't don't leave it hanging around. So it's keeping the cost down for Amazon as well.
0: I'm so glad we have you here because there's a couple of other stories on Amazon, but I want to make sure we at least get to this one uh, about Jeff Bezos kind of thinking about his legacy and uh, in his, uh, I think, a letter out to um, his annual letter out to, I think, shareholders. He talked about specifically, Spencer, you know, Amazon must treat workers better. Tell us about that. What, what's going on here?
6: Yeah, kind of day late and a dollar short on that. Right? <laughs> it's like, good note to <laughs> self, right? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, how, how do you interpret that, right? It's like, yeah. one, he's le- he's leaving the, the day-to-day operations, right? So employee treatment is really going to fall on Andy Jassy, the incoming new CEO. And so Bezos is like, hey, Andy, take better care of everybody. See you later and so i, I mean I, I don't i guess the, the the proof is in the pudding right it's like there's a lot of ambitious things here we're gonna reinvent this and we're going to be the best most safest company how about you just do a little better you know and so we'll, we'll just have to see how they how they do on this uh on, on this bold proclamation
1: hey spencer we only have about 30 seconds left but i mean what does that look like because amazon loves to talk about its 15 dollars minimum wage and employees getting health care all in the wake of uh, the uh, union's defeat in bessemer
6: yeah i mean it just it just Amazon is going to have to calibrate its customer obsession with an employee focus. It's going to—you it, you can easily misuse people when you, you know, whitewash it with customer obsession. And so, what's good for your customer isn't always good for your employee, and vice versa. So, they just have to be a little more deliberate in differentiating, you know, and and, and walking that walking that tight line.
0: Be that, better. Uh, Tightrope. It's about being better. Listen, you know, Business Roundtable, they all came out and said multiple stakeholders. Well, you got to kind of walk the talk here at this point. It's, it's yes, customers, it's investors, but it's also you got to take care of, you know, your house, your employees. Um, great reporting as always. So glad we got to check in with you. Spencer Soper, tech and e-commerce reporter here at Bloomberg News on the phone from Seattle.
1: Yeah, Amazon hiring half a million in people in the last year. -hmm. Amazing.
0: Yeah, and they can really move the needle when it comes to employee uh, programs uh, and really set the tone for other corporations.
5: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How
3: about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive.
0: Just drive,
3: drive, baby.
0: Yes, indeed, folks. Just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. We are on track for another week of gains. I think the fourth in a row for both the S&P and the Dow. NASDAQ on track for a third week of gains. Let's get to it with Hillary Kramer. She is President and Chief Investment Officer at a Capital Research. She's also author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She's on the phone in New York City. Hillary, nice to have you back with us. Uh, let's talk about those billion dollar trends. Anything new as a result? of 13 months into the pandemic that you think investors need to be keeping an eye on?
5: A market
0: that's way
5: too high, Carol. That's really (laughs) our feeling. We think that this melt-up, especially the one in April with the S&P 500 being up close to 5% already, and we're only mid-month. It's really a tough market to find good opportunities out there. And I liken it to, like I'm a football fanatic, New York Giants. It's like when you have a quarterback, and like all his receivers are covered, right? He has no one to throw to. He sees the defensive lineman coming towards him, and like he's like going to be a goner. That's how it feels to really?
0: all of us in
5: my firm. Hmm. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Now, yes, nothing the Bank said t- this
0: week kind of gave you, you know, reason to be calm.
5: Not really, because I think what was really important this week was what Larry Sink said from BlackRock, and it's still it's like indelible in my mind, and that is that the stimulus that we've seen, $7 trillion, has not been to stimulate the economy. It's been to bridge us during a terrible pandemic. And that is really the key to it all. Now we have President Biden looking at infrastructure, and that's one that's very hard to execute, and it's very hard to have that trickle down to Main Street, to, to the everyday person. And So I think it's going to be a tough time. Now, with that being said, you know me. Yeah, there's always stocks to buy. But like everyone hated Goldman Sachs, Carol, at $220. Remember that they hated it, hated it, hated it pre-pandemic. Now at $342, now we think it could go to $375. And we know because that would be 1.5 times book value. But that's only $30 more that Goldman Sachs has to go up. That's about 10%, not even. So we like So there there are companies we like, and we do think energy is going to take off again. You know, we think that there's some opportunity near term there, like Exxon with a 6.2% 6.2% dividend yield. but um, And actually, if you do want one that we still think is undervalued that the market missed, and that's Kronos, K-R-O, that makes that titanium dioxide pigments, which is for plastics and paints, mm-hmm. just one that the, the the market will figure out the inefficiency, and at $16.90, it'll probably be back being a $30 stock soon enough. But uh, a lot of the other smaller-cap stocks, or mid-caps, uh, they're already fully valued. If not, you know, overly valued. Hey,
1: Hillary, I'm, I'm I'm eager to yeah. talk to you about fixed income because we got some notes from our producer about how you're feeling about uh, you know the, the real the real yield that 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 consumers are getting when it comes to when fixed Tim income. Tim is right excited
0: now. about fixed income, I know. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, Hillary, you should feel very honored because this isn't a world he loves.
1: <laughs> so so anything that pays less than two percent, uh, you say, looks like dead money. So what are the what is the point of fixed income in a portfolio right now?
5: Well, it's about diversification. And so that's an excellent question to ask, but it, it's still diversification. It's just as simple as that. Uh, one thing that really we wonder is why, you know, who has brought this 10-year down to 1.57% from 1.75%? So if you want to talk in terms of, in terms of fixed income and, and, and the notes, I think the most important point is, you know, Someone is out there buying up U.S. Treasuries. And is it because of an uptick in cases? Is there something the Fed's doing that they actually haven't told us about? But what what I will say to take fixed income back to equities is that at 1.57%, technology is going to, like it has been, like big cap technology has been taking off again, right? That's why we have the Oracles and the Microsoft at 52-week highs. But as we see that 10-year start to rise... Right, and that goes back to 1.75 percent. Everyone who's been jumping back into equities are going to be in for a really big surprise. Well, you know, and uh, so that that that's I think my biggest concern. But yes, under two percent, it's it's really there's just so little money to be made out there. And we still have the fixed income investor being forced into the equity markets. And that's why they're, they're, they're jumping in, or that's why even I can I tell you,
0: Hillary, this sounds like if I could go back a few years after the financial crisis, we could have had this conversation where people, you know, it was constantly a search for yield. And it's why investors were, you know, consistently tapping into the the equity markets or other asset classes, because they were searching yield, why could we not get a repeat of what happened after the financial crisis, in terms of uh, markets, why could we not, in your view, get a repeat? Or could we get a repeat after this uh, crisis? I,
5: we actually already have. Is my, is my, You're my, saying it's everything. done everything already? Accelerated. I, we already have taken off. You know, every, the, the compression in time has already happened because everything happens that much faster. And and Carol, in terms of the financial crisis, that was a meltdown of the whole system. So you had forced liquidations that right. had to do with something very systemic, right? With with the cost of LIBOR, what banks refused to borrow and give to each other, and we everything just like seized up. But in this particular case, we're talking about a pandemic, and we're talking about a lot of money that's been sloshing around out there that has been used for speculation. And even though I do, as you know, recommend coinbase and I think hmm. coinbase and, and it traded back down I think it's gonna go up and I even think Bitcoin which which had which came down two or three thousand dollars today you know could be a hundred thousand dollars for a Bitcoin but that doesn't mean I believe over the long term it'd be, it could certainly go back down to so, five thousand but uh, for those who are short-term investors right. you know don't <laughs> don't don't you get on the get on the train because that that whole digital currency cryptocurrency it really is so, taking off so no yes, when to get off. we're almost out of time
0: everyone else dumped
1: so just yes or no are you adding into portfolios yes or no no okay
0: no. <laughs> not yet hillary kramer president and chief investment officer over at ang capital research